0: Here on the Decoding Health Podcast, we're tracing the healing journey and speaking with people who have offered something unique and powerful in their work. Often I have incorporated aspects of their approach into my own healing or the way I work with clients. I'm currently offering a hormonal renewal program that provides direct support and is customized to your unique needs. You can find out more about my work and the programs that I offer at decodinghealth.me. So here's to your health and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Decoding Health Podcast, where we explore all things left and right brained when it comes to health, diet and functional nutrition, detoxification, genetics, and most importantly, healing from serious illness and chronic disease. Join me, Sarah Carlson, a coach and a survivor, as we explore the integral components of resilience from stuck to free, heavy to lifted, and stagnant to energized. It turns out that the advice we seek is likely to be medicine for many others. We're here to share, grow, and learn together while we customize our approach to our individual needs. We explore all this and more here at the Decoding Health Podcast. This conversation with Karen Hurd is split up into two parts. The first part gets into the process of how the body actually clears toxic waste and hormones. The second part gets further into Karen's philosophy and approach to balancing the body. And I know the critical parts, you know, the no sugar and the no caffeine. And at first, honestly, they were a little daunting for me because having been someone who had some life challenges, It's easy to turn to caffeine to get your energy and and unconsciously turn to sugar, even though, you know, I thought that I was sort of over it. But, you know, I found myself reaching for those like natural sweeteners or, you know, and I still sometimes do feel myself wanting them. So if you take out all the supplements and you take out all the inputs and the hormone balancing inputs of this supplement or that, like, how does your body, how can your body settle in? To its own rhythm and its own optimal biochemistry, without you know the adrenaline spikes of caffeine or intense you know exercise or um, you know the sugar spikes that we get and things like that that can create these adrenal surges and crashes that um, really you know we don't we're so wired this way in our culture that we don't even realize. How much we're just constantly um, impacting our hormonal system as we move throughout the day, because it's become almost part of our culture to try and always be in this high in adrenaline state, or you know, until we're not, until we crash. I guess. Yes, I know exactly what you're saying. The problem is, is that we start our children
1: eating and consuming stimulants at a very young age. So it's very common for even a baby of six months to be having spoonfuls of mama's ice cream or pudding, or if they're on a formula, formula, the number one ingredient is sugar. And so we start at a very young age and these stimulants, sugar, caffeine, and there's many others that we can go through later what they are, all of those increase an adrenaline production. And you can say, well, that's great. That gives me energy. But there's, there's this problem is that the adrenal glands are set to produce so much adrenaline as you continue to prod and poke them to produce more and more, there comes a time when they become fatigued and they're not able to produce at the level that you want them to produce. So what do you do to whip them into action and make them produce? Because they become fatigued because you were whipping them before. You just have to whip them harder. You get two whips. You get three whips. You just have to do more and more. So now you need not one cup of coffee, but you need three cups of coffee. And now you have to have sugar all the time. And then we use other stimulants that are always increasing this production of hormones. And hormones, when we increase the production of hormones, your body is going to try to clear them. But we have a a system that keeps them recycling at 95%. And so they just build and build. And hormones are catalysts they will trigger chemical reactions inside your body. And one of the major ones they trigger is the uh, production of hormones, such as the female hormones or the male hormones, as well as adrenaline. But the female and male hormones, especially the female hormones, they are almost always responsible for our cancers because they are having, there's an overproduction of these hormones and those overproductions of hormones stimulate cells that have receptor sites on them for those hormones and then cause those cells to grow abnormally and out of control. And we call that a cancer. So, I mean, it affects us all. And then we can get into depression and anxiety. If you have too much adrenaline flowing at one moment, you're going to be anxious on edge, like a cat on a hot tin roof dancing around you can have hyperthyroidism you can tire out these glands and then you end up on the opposite side with depression and hypothyroidism and being down and no energy and and all you've been doing is you've been abusing the glands that make hormones for you and without knowing it because we were raised as children you know we we, i substitute teach in a school here in my local city and i i i I'm appalled at what the kids are eating. You know, they bring in for snacks. There is no healthy snack. They think a healthy snack is a sweet, and it's not. And so we wonder, you know, why our kids are the way they do and they grow up and they have problems, and you know, we already had people and they're look how young you are, and you know, already have had cancer. This is this is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Because food has the power to kill you. And that's what we gotta stop eating the stuff that kills us and then start eating the stuff that gives the body the nutrients it needs because the body knows how to create good health. It gives the body, the nutrients it needs to create optimal health. And a person can, and there's, I want to address something that you just said, you know, that we want to have that adrenaline rush. We rush. We want to have all that energy we want. You can have all that. You can have all of that energy and sustained energy and fantastic health by eating well, and continue to eat well, and you have to eat well for a sustained period of time. It's not like, I ate well for one meal. Why am I not 100% well? Oh, no. We have mitoses of cells that means cell lives that have to, cells got to die and be replaced. I mean, there's a healing process. But once you're there, you can be at an optimum health, and you will have tons and tons and tons of energy without any stimulants.
0: Yeah, I can say that my energy has really it's gotten it's gotten really good um and and yeah this is some i'm someone that really depended on um coffee and i definitely had some adrenal burnout um going on so it's been it's been really eye opening to just kind of settle back into relying on my my body and not external sources of stimulation to um to, to fuel me <laughs> it's like a novel concept right um that we mm-hmm. just let our own bodies Run our energy system without trying to constantly manipulate him. Yeah, it's, it's, it, do you think it's something to do with our culture? You know, just this productivity culture that we really praise work, that Protestant work ethic. You know, we praise, you know, people that just get up and work hard and earn, you know, and it's, it's like we've forgotten that it's really a balance. And if we just settle into not relying on these stimulants, it's much easier to find that balance internally. But when you're pumping yourself full of these stimulants and things, then it's really hard to find your your natural center. You, you won't find
1: it because you just bounce from going all the way
0: up, you know, with all this huge
1: you know, amount of energy to crash. OK, so now you take your coffee or your caffeine or there's several of them and we can go through them what they are in a minute. And then you're up again and then you crash. So there's never this level, consistent, steady, wonderful energy. It's just I'm up or
0: I'm down, up, down, up, down like a roller coaster. Can you go into some of the other stimulants? Because, yeah, I, I see it with my friends, but I want to do want to educate people so people can understand that, you know, there is another way and that, you know, they don't have to be in the the energy crash um, surge cycle, which can be really stressful and cause a lot of anxiety, you know? It is stressful, and it will cause you some very
1: major health problems as time goes on. Um, the, at the top of the list, of course, we have caffeine. Caffeine is a direct stimulant to the adrenal um, glands, which produce for you adrenaline, That's your get-up-and-go hormone, that gives you that energy, that clear thinking, that drive, that motivation. You can have that all without caffeine if you're in a if you have optimal good health, and you've already experienced it with just you know a few months on the Protocol, you can see the difference in your already. So caffeine caffeine comes in the form of coffee. It comes in the form of green teas, black teas, long teas. Um, it comes in the form of chocolate. It is um, in many different energy drinks. You know, people will get these energy drinks. You've seen them on the market. Of course, it's in, you know, things like Mountain Dew and Coke and Pepsi and all of those things. And so Caffeine has become a, a, a drug that our population is generally addicted to. Caffeine is very addictive. The more you have it, the more you want of it. And then the more you need of it to keep going because it loses its efficacy. The more and more you take, then it's, you need more and more to get the same high, the same adrenaline rush from it. And then all the time you're tearing down the rest of your body. So caffeine is a, is a bugaboo. And if a person wants to give it up, You can choose to wean off of it, but you need to be aware of the side effects. You can also do an abrupt withdrawal. I always think abrupt withdrawal is easier because then you get through the pain and the discomfort more quickly than stretching it out over six weeks. But through weaning process, but caffeine withdrawal means that you're probably going to have a whopping migraine type headache and you will be grouchy. You will be irritable. You will be so tired. You will be mood swings all over the place. And wondering, what is the matter with me? Well, welcome to the world of caffeine withdrawal. The worst days of caffeine withdrawal are the second, third, and fourth day of no caffeine. And in those days, you know, I just recommend lock yourself in a closet and don't come out because you don't want to disturb the world around you with your nasty behavior and your meanness because you don't feel well. And then after the fourth day, the symptoms begin to lift. It takes a full two weeks to get all the caffeine out of your bloodstream. And so after those first four days, then things start to lighten up and are better. And you still wonder, but why am I so tired? I thought this guy was supposed to make me better. It will make you better, but you will not heal overnight. We have a lot of work to rebuild the adrenal glands that you tore up with all the whips that you were beating it with for all those years. And, but you will heal. And our bodies always heal. We have this wonderful process called mitosis, where cells die off and they're replaced with brand new ones that can do a good job. So we do heal. Another substance that is a stimulant is sugar. Sugar, it is a secondary response in stimulating adrenaline. It does stimulate adrenaline. But sugar does it in a secondary way. Instead of a direct stimulus to the adrenal glands to produce adrenaline, it causes you to spike in blood sugars. And whenever you have a spike in your blood sugar, you'll have a subsequent drop. You have to. Because if your blood sugars, when a person eats sugar, your blood sugars go up very, very rapidly. Well, you have a safety mechanism in your body to keep your blood sugars from going up too rapidly. Because if you do, you'll go into a state called diabetic coma. And you'll say, well, I've eaten lots of sugar and I've never been in diabetic coma. No, you haven't. Because you have a safeguard these these fences that are built in the body. And the fence that is built is that when you eat a lot of sugar, you will produce a large amount of insulin. Insulin is a hormone produced in your pancreas. And it will pour out insulin to... Take the blood sugar, convert it to a fat, store it on you as a fat cell, but then the sugar in the bloodstream comes down, so you don't have to worry about going into diabetic coma, which, by the way, is most often fatal. Almost always you die of diabetic... I mean, if you're in a diabetic coma, you can say, okay, you're a goner. So... So you have all this insulin produced. Well, what does that do to the pancreas? Well, you keep eating sugar over and over and over, then the pancreas becomes fatigued because it's always pumping out these huge amounts of insulin. And so then your pancreas doesn't work very well. And then we have a situation called diabetes. You know, that's not a good situation. Diabetes is rampant. It's beyond epidemic proportions in the United States and in our world. So, but you say, well, how does that have anything to do with the adrenaline? How come I get all this energy? Because... All this is happening in just moments in time. Your sugar spikes because while you're chewing or eating whatever that cookie is or that piece of candy or whatever is in your mouth, we're talking about this is happening in seconds, the absorption, in seconds. That sugar is in your bloodstream. Your body goes, oh, no, look at her blood sugar levels. They've increased by this many points in a half a second. What are we going to do? Release insulin. How long does it take to release insulin? A couple days? No, instantaneously it is released. And it slams that blood sugar down right now. And when it slams the blood sugar down, it brings it down as fast as it's going up. So now your blood sugar is going down, 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 crashing. You're crashing. Well, there's the opposite of diabetic comas called insulin shock. There's so much insulin in your system now that it's removing all the sugars. And if you remove all the sugars from your bloodstream, guess what? You die. Because it is the sugar that gives your brain the ability. Sugar is the energy source that the brain uses to make the neurotransmitters for you to think. If you don't make the neurotransmitters, your brain shuts down. That's called death. And in just in medical terms, we call it insulin shock. Too much insulin. So then now you're dropping, dropping, dropping. And if we don't do something right now, you are going to die of insulin shock. So what does the body do? Tell you, go eat sugar. That's why if you think about eating sugar, does one person eat an Oreo cookie? One. Do they just eat two? Do they just eat three? No, you watch them. They'll eat half the package or you know, a huge amount of however many, you know, these huge cinnamon rolls. You know, cinnamon rolls, when I grew up with these little things, now they're a plate, dinner plate size, you know. Or you get a cookie, you know, and it's not just a, it's a plate size cookie. Everything is just, you got to have more and more sugar because we have to, we have to counteract this insulin drop. Well, what if you say, I am not going to do it, I am not going to eat any sugar, so do you die? No, because your body says her sugar is dropping so rapidly and she's not eating any sugar at the moment, so we will make sugar. Your liver can actually make sugar. It's a process called gluconeogenesis. Gluco means sugar, neo is new, genesis is creation. We're going to create new sugar. How do you do that? Well, the body has to actually do some conversions. It usually will use proteins. It will take good proteins, strip off some nitrogens off of these molecules of protein, and make a carbohydrate out of it, make a sugar out of it. But when you do that, you release a nitrogen atom, and the nitrogen immediately combines with hydrogen in your bloodstream, which creates NH3. NH3 is a chemical formula for ammonia. What's well, really bad for ammonia to be in your bloodstream. So now the kidneys are going, whoa, she's got ammonia. She's going to die ammonia poisoning. So I have to slam on a hydroxyl particle, which is an OH and oxygen and hydrogen, and that makes urea. So now you're urinating more frequently and you're putting a stress on your kidneys. Oh, and by the way, your liver's stressed because it's doing a conversion of all these proteins into sugars. It just becomes a real hassle. Oh, but your blood sugar comes back up and so you feel okay. So now you have stressed when you eat sugar, <laughs> By the way, the trigger to make gluconeogenesis happen is you have to have a hormone. Hormones trigger all of these chemical reactions. Well, what's the name of the hormone that triggers gluconeogenesis that the liver has to do when you eat sugar because your sugar went up and now it's falling? Adrenaline. It's that, whoa, adrenaline. I got energy. I'm ready to go. And it's, it's it's a secondary way to get to the production of adrenaline, but it's terrible. But this time... The caffeine stresses, definitely stresses the adrenal glands. But the sugar stresses the adrenal glands, the liver, the pancreas, and the kidneys. It's just like terrible. And, and so it's, we don't want to do that route either. So what, other, what
0: do we do for other stimulation? Let me just recap that really quick. So we have, first we have caffeine, and then we have mm-hmm. sugar. Caffeine, which affects the adrenals. And then we have sugar, which, which is affecting the adrenals, the pancreas and the liver, is that correct? Is that what you said? And the kidneys. And we're gonna continue on with, uh, with the others. Um, this is great.
1: Right. Then we have the perfumes and fragrances. And everybody needs to hear this loudly and clearly because we're in a part, a time in our society that we have put a major emphasis on the use of essential oils. And it is any pheromone. A pheromone is um, a substance that we inhale that we smell that will elicit a response. And so we will breathe in a perfume, a fragrance, an uh, essential oil, and it will elicit a hormonal response. And it's, and it also does some other things too. So let's look at the hormonal response first. When you breathe that in, it's considered actually a toxin or a poison. And so your body's going to quickly want to get rid of it. How do you get rid of things more quickly? How do, how, what's, who's clearing this? That what you're breathing in? Because it actually does end up in your bloodstream, even though it is coming in. And-
0: I was just mm-hmm. curious, like, okay, so essential oils do this. Do any fragrance, like if you smell a flower, does this happen? Yes. I'm just kind of trying to differentiate. But yes. smells are part of our world. So they, are they all bad or how does that work?
1: Only when they're concentrated and you breathe them constantly. So you think about it. You're walking through someone's flower garden and you smell the roses or the lilacs or whatever it is. Is that concentrated? No, it's not concentrated at all. And you're also smelling it in an environment that its you have the entire world. I mean, you have the air. You have circulating air. You're outside when you're smelling these smells. So it's very much dissipated. And you might just get a waft of the lilac, you know. It's just a moment that you smell it. Now compare that if you go over to the lilac bush and you put your nose right up against the lilac blooms and you just inhale them and inhale them. That's all you do, just breathe the lilac. You, I will tell you you'll have a headache pretty soon, you know, because that's all you're doing. And so what we do when we apply perfumes and fragrances, we are applying, and essential oils also, we are applying constant, very highly concentrated solutions of these things to our skin and then we smell them and you will and we become so desensitized to and that's one only when they're concentrated and you breathe them constantly so you think about it you're walking through someone's flower garden and you smell the roses or the lilacs or whatever it is is that concentrated no it's not concentrated at all and you're also smelling it in an environment that its you have the entire world. I mean, you have the air. You have circulating air. You're outside when you're smelling these smells. So it's very much dissipated. And you might just get a waft of the lilac, you know. It's just a moment that you smell it. Now compare that. If you go over to the lilac bush and you put your nose right up against the lilac blooms and you just inhale them. And inhale them. That's all you do just breathe the lilac. You, I will tell you, you'll have a headache pretty soon you know because that's all you're doing so what we do when we apply perfumes and fragrances we are applying and essential oils also we are applying constant very highly concentrated solutions of these things to our skin and then we smell them and you will and we become so desensitized to and that's one of the things that these perfumes fragrances and essential oils do is that we have olfactory sensory neurons that are picking up the different smells and then they send the message to your brain oh I smell lilac or rose or whatever you're smelling. But as you continue to stimulate these olfactory sensory neurons that with another molecule of the lavender or whatever it is or the then the, or the lilac, then whatever, it it continues to stimulate, 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 stimulate the cell. And it cannot continue to be overstimulated because that is too difficult on the cell. So the receptor sites that are picking up these smells will go through a process of called endocytosis. That means they are, these receptor sites are sitting on the outside of the cell wall of these neurons. And then they will, sink through the cell wall and go inside, deep inside, and hide out. And then they can't pick up the smell. Is the smell still there? Yes, but you don't have the receptor site there anymore to tell you it's there. That's why you have people that they will put on their perfume or whatever, and they go, I can't even smell it. This stuff is so weak, and they put on more. And it's like, I still can't smell it. And then they go out somewhere else, and somebody's like, <coughs> did you take a bath in pure perfume you are stinking i have they go i can't smell it they can't smell it because in their cells that are that are determining you know that are giving them that response and telling them i smell this they have all gone through the process of endocytosis they're hiding inside the cell because they have been so bludgeoned and beaten and stimulated and stimulated and stimulated and stimulated and stimulated, and stimulated, and stimulated. they can't handle that anymore they have to run away imagine if somebody poked you they just keep poking you right here. just poke you on their cheek. Poke, 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 poke. That doesn't bother me right now. After you've done this about 10,000 times, I'm ready to scream. I'm ready to slap your hand away. I'm ready to do something. We're doing the very same thing with every breath when we breathe in perfumes, these olfactory sensory cells. And so the receptor sites run away from that overstimulus, and they sink through the cell wall, and they hide until finally the smell goes away. And when it goes away and you quit using your perfumes, you will go someplace and you will have the the cells will go through the exocytosis where the receptor sites will come back out of the cell and emerge back on the cell wall. And then all of a sudden, You smell things like you've never smelled them before. Even just a little tiny smell walking by someone in a large grocery store or something like that. You get just the tiniest whiff and it's just like overwhelming to you. Welcome to the world of having all your receptors back online. They're there to give you a warning and say, don't keep smelling these things all the time. Now, that's one of the things they do as far as the, the olfactory neurons. But they are also stimulating you. Why do essential oils work? I don't deny the efficacy that essential oils. You can do lavender, and you may feel more calm. So oh, you could also, you know, t- take an anti-anxiety and feel drug and feel more calm. You could do a lot of things to feel more calm, but they are actually causing a stimulation of different hormones. there always are pheromones elicit hormonal responses, and so you some of these pheromones will elicit. Uh, the production of estrogen, testosterone, some are adrenaline, some are. There's many different hormones that we can produce with these pheromones, and so all we've done is create more stimulation. So the glands that are producing these hormones become tired, fatigue, and eventually say, "I just can't do this anymore. I'm so tired." And then you wonder why you have, you know, you're underproducing hormones, you have no energy, you have hypothyroidism, you have all the problems that you have. Well. You just keep, you just can't keep beating a horse and think it's going to run for you forever. If you keep beating the horse, there's a the time that horse will say to lie down and say, "I don't care how hard you beat me, I'm on the side of the road dying,
0: and stop beating me, and maybe I could recover." And I guess that looks like you know, it you know, just ex- exhaustion. <laughs> you know,
1: it is, it is exactly what it is. It's it's just an adrenal. Fatigue. We can call things adrenal exhaustion too, but, or this adrenal failure, but that goes into another whole medical situation which doesn't apply here. But adrenal exhaustion is a good way to put it. And just, yeah, endocrine system exhaustion because we have many glands. Endocrine system is composed of glands that produce hormones. And so we just have exhaustion throughout the system. So we have perfumes. Now we got caffeine, we got sugar, we got perfumes, and that includes our, our, um, essential oils. And it's the ones that you are exposed to constantly because you're going to go someplace and you're going to walk by the lady in a grocery store, but you're only exposed to her for, you know, the second it takes you to walk by her, then you're out of that, you know, space, but it's when you are wearing it and you breathe it with every breath or it's on your clothes. You know, we have all of these laundry products that are so heavily scented and then you wear these clothes and you're breathing the perfume constantly. It's really sad. I work with a lot of kids that have seizures and, you know, and it is a major stimulus to seizure activity is all these perfumes and fragrances. will so set them off into a seizure just like that.
0: Yeah. Wow. And um, so, and then when you have like extracts, is that on the same par with an essential oil? Lots of extracts in um, natural care products or like shampoos and things like that.
1: Those extracts are highly concentrated. They will bother you too. Yes. Even if they're a natural extract because of the high concentration. And so it's so different than you walking through your flower garden. I mean, they're not concentrated and you're only exposed for a brief moment and then the breeze blows and blows it away. And you're not
0: wearing it on your skin. Right, right. Okay, so we got sugar, caffeine, and fragrance. And what else, what else?
1: Well, there are several things. Let's talk about cold. Whenever we are exposed to, you know, I I just look in the paper and I see these polar plunges things and, you know, I just think, oh, guys, do you know what you are doing to your endocrine system? Do you know the huge stress that you're putting on your body? Your body has to maintain homeostasis. You have to maintain a body temperature of 98.6 and that's rough, okay? There's a range of normal temperatures. So at 98.6, you don't have to be that on the dot. But you have to maintain a normal body temperature. If you don't, if it gets too high, you die. If it gets too low, you die. So the body is constantly trying to keep this. Well, you do the polar plunge? Or I watch these kids. I, I live in Wisconsin, you know, and so it's been up in the 50s recently. And they think it's summer. They're going to school with shorts and a T-shirt on. And I know it's because it does get to minus 20 without the windshield here. And you feel like it's so warm, it's 50 degrees, it's still cold. 50 degrees is a whole lot colder than 98 degrees Fahrenheit. So your body has, you're exposed to this 50 degree weather and your body's working like crazy, doing what? Producing hormones so that we can heat your body up to the, keep your body at 98 degrees. Because if you drop to 50 degrees, you, well, you'll be dead long before you get to 50 degrees. You won't die of hypothermia. And so you you we don't wear adequate clothing and we think, well, you know, I go out with that brisk cold air, you know, and and until I'm shivering, I think that's invigorating. Yeah, it's invigorating because you have these large hormonal releases to try to keep you alive. So that's another stimulant that we don't even think about. It's like dress for the weather, wear clothes, wear layers. So that's another one. Another one that people do not like to hear about is physical exercise. And we all have been aware that, you know, if I could just walk fast enough, run, then I get this rush. There's endorphins that are certainly released, which are a type of a brain chemical. But you are also releasing adrenaline. You cannot put one step in front of the other or do whatever, you know, calisthenics, whatever you're doing this exercise without producing adrenaline. You have to have adrenaline as a catalyst to make those muscles move and make that exercise happen. And when you're producing adrenaline, do you feel great? And all your aches and pains go away. Those who suffer with arthritis, they say, yes, when I'm out there walking, you know, and doing my power walk, I don't have any aches and pains in my knees or whatever is hurting. My hips. Yes, because not only do you produce adrenaline, you're producing all your hormones, you're producing a hormone called cortical steroids. Cortical steroids are made in the adrenal glands, too. The adrenal glands make several different types of hormones. And cortical steroids reduce pain and inflammation. So as long as you're out there going then you're producing large amounts of adrenaline and cortical steroids. And you're right. You're not in pain. But well, I'll tell you, you get home and you're not even sitting in that chair for half an hour and you're so seized up with stiffness and pain that you just want to cry. It's because you stop producing the extra cortical steroid and you put just a strain on your system, on your adrenal glands that are producing this, that now they can't even make a little bit of it for you. So you hurt even more and you actually create more pain and more inflammation. Instead, Don't exercise. Don't put that stress on your adrenal system when you have a health problem and allow the adrenal system to heal and then it can produce adequate cortical steroids for you, adequate adrenaline for you because it it can just keep up with your needs. But we have really placed an emphasis, an overemphasis on exercise and worship. We fall and worship at the feet of exercise in our country today. And actually not just our country, almost across the world in all the civilized nations. So give you an example look at farmers i'm around a lot of farmers and they exercise all day long they lift heavy things they're always in motion they're milking cows or they're handling all their you know their crops their cash crops their beef cattle whatever they're doing they're in constant motion and i want you to meet a farmer in his early 50s or in their late 40s their bodies are broken they're broken they're so stiff they're so in pain everything is you know and that's because they have been constantly exercising their life as an exercise they never stop and so it's a lot of hormonal production and then they can't make the hormones anymore and then they pay
0: mm. yeah yeah you know there's this idea of stress can be beneficial sometimes so how would you is there a moderate place for exercise in a regular healthy person's life I mean, what would you recommend?
1: What I consider a moderate place for exercise is three times a week, no more than 30 minutes. So if you want to go for your run or your rapid walk or your calisthenic workout, you could do that three times a week for 30 minutes without damaging your system. If you've already damaged your system, you already have arthritis, you already have health problems, you already have PMS, you already have cancer, you already have whatever you got going on, all that's going to do is just add to the problem. So if you are a healthy individual, you can tolerate 30 minutes, three times a week because you were exercising every minute of your day because you had to get out of bed and you had to walk to the kitchen and you had to walk to your car and you were doing stuff. You are not just, you don't, you're not stuck in a wheelchair like a paraplegic. You were actually in motion doing something. And so we are always exercising in some form or fashion.
0: What about um, you, I know you had recommended that sometimes yoga and Pilates and things like that can be okay for like a...
1: Those aren't exercises, they're not adrenaline producers because you know, in yoga you're taking, everything is very slow and you're pausing and uh, their stances, you know, that you take a tree stance or whatever the stance is. And so you're not doing this repetitive motion, go, 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 go. You just, it's all very slow or you're still, Pilates is not a repetitive it's a stretch you know your muscles that's all fine that's not repetitive constant motion and what about walking walking yes walking is okay you know like if you have to walk to work or you walk to the park or it's an even, a nice evening but it's a stroll it's a walk just like you would be walking around your house or you would be walking doing whatever you're doing in your job that is all fine but it's not a power walk and I have got to get in, you know, 10 miles or whatever. It's just, you know, we don't go for a stroll for 12, you know, 10, 12 miles. We, we go around the block a couple times and then we got to get in because we've got to get the kids to bed or whatever we're doing. So it becomes a leisure stroll, leisurely stroll. And I need to mention another another uh, stimulant. And you mentioned it, stress, but you were referring to it in the distress of exercise. But it is stress. It is mental, emotional stress. If we are having a bad marriage or you're having a bad time in your life, you lost your job, you don't have enough money. I mean, we all have pressures and stress. You know, the COVID lockdowns, they were very stressful on many, many people. That's why we had a huge increase in suicides and drug use and overdoses, drugs and all the rest of it. It's extremely stressful. When you're under stress, you have to produce stress hormones to handle whatever the terrible situation is. Well, what are the stress hormones? Adrenaline. It's adrenaline. And so if you're constantly, if you live in a situation, because some people live in situations that are constantly stressful, that they live with an abusive spouse or, you know, they live in a situation with an alcoholic mother or father or whatever, you know, and it's just a horrible place to be all the time. And they're just always on edge. That wears out their adrenal glands too, and these people are subject to depression and anxiety and all kinds of health problems because their adrenaline is always, always up, always up. Firefighters, the police, especially emergency
0: services people. Um, this this whole thing is such a runs so counter to so much we have been conditioned to believe and think about our bodies. I mean. You know, there's obvious benefits to, exer- to exercise for circulation. For, I mean, like, you know, even with breast cancer, it's like if you take a walk a day, your odds of surviving breast cancer, you know, you have double the chances of preventing recurrence or something like that. Um, so, how do you kind of address the balance of all of that, right? I mean, um, yeah, I'm just curious because, uh, you know, obviously everything in life comes with its stresses.
1: Sometimes we we need to run away, yes, from whatever the danger is. Yes. And so that's important. And so if you're healthy, you will have that response there, and you will be able to run from the danger. But to always be running from danger every day, all day long, that's the problem. So so
0: how do we find balance in our lives? You know, some people... seem to really not get enough movement in their body.
1: Yeah, and what we have to look at, I mean, you you have to look at all factors. Like, you know, you were just, you know, you alluded to a study that showed if you're walking every day and you have cancer that it's beneficial to you. So what we have to do is you have to look at that study and say, okay, what are the other factors that were being done at the same time? Were there other factors affecting it? Because the people that have cancer, they usually are trying to improve their lifestyle across the board. So not only are they walking because they think that's best for them, but they've also gotten rid of sugar and they've gotten rid of caffeine and they're eating, you know, good antioxidant vegetables and they're doing everything else. So are they better because of the walking? Or are they better because they gave up the sugar and the caffeine and are eating all the good antioxidant vegetables? So that all has to be factored in. And, you know, I'm not giving you an answer to that. I'm just saying, When you look at a study, you have to look at those parameters because to be absolutely certain, we'd have to say, okay, this control group over here, you guys are going to keep eating horribly just the way you've always eaten. And I know this is, this is a moral dilemma because you say you guys have cancer and we know this, this diet will help you get better, but you keep eating terribly. And all I want you to do is walk every day. And then we're going to evaluate this and your cancer in a year from now and see who's still alive and who's still dead. You know, now, are we really going to withhold the knowledge that we know if you eat better, that you're going to improve with your cancer? No, we don't ever do that. So we don't have those studies. We don't have it where it's just the only variable that changed is that you were exercising. So where do you find the balance? I will tell you that I think most people get adequate exercise because of what they do. They, you know, they walk out to the mailbox and get their mail. They take care of the kids all day. They do the dishes. They do the laundry. They do whatever they do at work. And you say, well, my work is sitting down at a computer. Well, I'm sure you get up and walk yourself to the bathroom a couple times a day. And I'm sure you have to go in and talk to your coworkers and, you know, whatever it is your job is and talk to them about that. You got to walk down the copy machine or the printer or whatever you're doing. I would say the majority of people get enough exercise. The only ones that really don't are the ones that I mentioned before. If you are a closet quadriplegic and you are in a wheelchair and you can't move, that is a problem because there is no motion. And then your muscles atrophy. People say, well, if I don't exercise, my muscles atrophy. Which muscles are atrophying? Or you say, well, I don't have the biceps that I used to have. I know you can't see this right here, but I got some really nice biceps. Why do I have all these nice biceps? Because I lift my grandchildren all day long. Not all day long, but I'm with them almost every evening. And so I carry these heavy little babies, you know, and some of them are weighing 40 pounds now, you know, and so you lift them up. And so I've developed muscles for what I do because I'm helping my daughter when I went to take care of her children. If I happen to be a male carrier, well, then I'm sure I would develop strong calves and thighs because you walk, 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 you know, you develop muscles for whatever you do. And if people say, well, I used to lift weights and I had all these muscles, and now you're saying don't exercise because it's not good for my health, it stresses my adrenal glands, so I've lost all this muscle mass. Well, you still have the muscle mass to lift your pencil and write, and you still have your muscle mass to wash the dishes, you will have the muscle mass to do whatever you do on a regular, everyday basis. If you used to work out all the time, then, yes, you're going to have the muscles that you developed in whatever exercise you were doing. We get all twisted up around that, and it's just like, do you need to have, do you really need to lift 100 pounds at a dead weight? Do you need to do that? Is that a part of your job? Well, if you do, then you'll be able to do that because it's your part of your job. You know, but it's just a superfluous, you know, bodybuilding is just like a sculpting of your body.
0: Yeah. Right. Like, what do we need to function daily lives? And like, our lives in a way support that because we do it repetitively. Exactly. Exactly. I just wanna let our listeners know the vast different number of bodily issues that are addressed by your protocol. Well, and and there's different emphases according to
1: what we're trying to fix. If we're gonna work on the digestive system, I am not going to say, you need to be eating a lot of good nuts. You know, and you need to be putting oil on all your food. Oh, if I told somebody that that has digestive problems, I'm just going to make their digestive problems worse. So you, you have to focus on where are you now? What problems do you have now? If you don't have any problems, then you should take, I have a general nutrition course called Living Well. Take the Living Well course, and then, you know, this is how to maintain your great health. But digestive issues call for one protocol. If you're losing your hair, you're turning gray prematurely, that calls for another protocol, which you could not do if you had gallbladder disease, because gallbladder disease is calling for something different. And so, every, you know, if you have eczema, that's calling for something specific. If you have gout, it's calling for something specific. And so, each of these protocols, I've produced 17 courses so far, and in the process of continuing to put out courses because there are so many different situations. So you're saying, so what does diet address as far as health situations? Every single health situation that we have out there, every one of them. So whether you say I have a low immune system function, I'm always sick. I have allergies. I have asthma. I am infertile. um, I have Uh, prostate problems. I have heart disease. I have cancer. I have uh, osteoporosis. I have migraine headaches. I have, you know, eczema. I have psoriasis. Every problem there is, those health problems are telling you something is out of balance in your body. And so you're not, you're not, you're eating something you shouldn't, and you're not getting the things you should. So the basic premise for everybody, you're all going to have to get rid of caffeine and sugar and all the scents and perfumes. That's just a given. Those things never come back. People say, "Oh, when do I get to have my cup of coffee back? Never, because you just go back down the same road again. It's an addictive substance. You'll just be going down right where you were. So we address everything. And even genetic deficiencies can't change, you know, trisomy, which is, you know, if you have an extra chromosome or something like that well, we can turn genes on and turn genes off. I work with all kinds of children with the genes that give them seizures and we stop the seizures, even though they have the gene for it because you can turn the gene off. So there's a
0: lot of genetic research coming in that we can do too. So, yes. Well, thank you so, so much for coming. Um, Karen, it's so great to have you on and to go to her website and check out her courses. She has an, an immense well of wisdom and practical information and, um, We're really grateful that she graced us with her time today. You're very welcome. It turns out that the advice we seek is likely to be medicine for many others. We're here to share, grow and learn together while we customize our approach to our individual needs. We explore all this and more here at the decoding health podcast.